welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The world as we know it lately has completely changed, and over the past few months, we've been deep in the midst of a global pandemic from SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19 infection. People everywhere are working amazingly hard to take care of patients with COVID-19, try to cease the spread of this terrible illness, and ultimately find a cure, and more importantly, a way to prevent future pandemics in the form of a vaccine. As we all race to keep up and do the best thing we can for our patients and for each other, the Breakpoints team wanted to touch base with two SIDP board members and infectious diseases pharmacists who both have been instrumental in pandemic response efforts at their institutions and for the nation and the world. First, I'm joined by Dr. Julianne Justo. Julie serves as the board member at large in charge of our communications team, and Julie is also a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy and an absolute rock star ID and stewardship pharmacist at Prisma Health Midlands in Columbia, South Carolina. Julie, I know you are insanely busy lately, so thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Erin. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you today. Um, it has been really busy, both locally and within SIDP Communications, but I'm excited to be here with you today. We are very excited to have you. And then we are also joined by Dr. Jason Polk, who currently serves as the president of SIDP. Jason is a clinical professor at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy, who's also just been working tirelessly to analyze data surrounding COVID-19 therapies, including the antiviral and the immunomodulatory agents. Jason, thank you for joining us. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Julie. Good to hear you both, and, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, thank you. And so, guys, let's, let's dive right into this. There is a lot going on out there, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we laugh so we don't cry. Um, <laughs> there are, no, but in all seriousness, there's a lot going on out there, and it's so important that we are critically evaluating what's coming out and doing the best thing we can for our patients in a, in a time like never before we're, ha we're having to respond to things very quickly. There are a lot of proposed treatments for COVID-19, but there currently is no known effective treatment for this virus outside of supportive care. And so in this realm of information overload, like we've never seen before, it's, it's really hard to not react to every single thing because we all want to find a treatment, right? So how are you staying sane in this as data emerges? Uh, yeah, Aaron, it's, it's super intimidating. There's no doubt. Uh, I, I think that it's important to always, you know, keep grounded in what's going on. And, and, and it's understandable that people are reacting so much, right? Because we're all looking for hope. We're all trying to go through 30, 50 relevant publications on a daily basis. Again, that's just on PubMed. If you, now we're all very familiar with MedRxIV where there's 9,000 pre-pubs that come out, pre-prints on that website as well. And so it, it certainly can be intimidating, it can be overwhelming, but I, I would hope that at this point, that we're starting to learn our lesson. As some of the studies that have come out that have driven some of the early treatments have either been completely invalidated, one has been withdrawn, or really if you, if you do the due diligence and you closer, do a closer examination, you'll find that what they're actually reporting on in that trial is actually different than what's registered on clinical trials websites. And so I think that it's really important, it's really imperative that we do our job and, and remain diligent. 
we have to slow down. I know that's hard to do, but it's, it's critically important that we slow down. We have to think about what we are reading and we have to do the same thing that we usually do to assess literature. It's gotta be the same thought process. Again, I realize that we need to do it quicker, but we still need to do it thoroughly. We all want to find a successful treatment that doesn't mean that, that we can just blindly accept what we are seeing. These therapies are not without risks. And so I, I think that while it's important to think that you know, we can have a different threshold for what you might accept to make a decision in the interim for an individual patient, I, I think it's critical that you just can't pretend like the data set you're looking at isn't hor horrifically flawed, uh, largely uninterpretable. And again, because a lot of these exist only in preprint form, you really don't even know basic information that you would need to interpret if the data are helpful or not. And so I think it's really important that we're honest about that. And just to be crystal clear to the audience, I'm talking about the clinical outcomes data with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, again, I, I understand the desire to have usable information there, but unfortunately we really don't. And, and to answer your other point is, you know, how am I staying sane? Um, I'll let you know when I figure out the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just I called you. I called Julie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we should have seen that coming from, from Jason with regards to staying sane. But um, for me, honestly, the urgency and the speed of this emerging data has, has definitely been overwhelming. Um, and I think it's important to admit that. Um, all of us have been struggling in one way or another um, with trying to maintain this, this high bar that we have for evaluating literature. Um, for me, while I won't say that I've completely figured out how to best handle this, this fire hose of information, um, there are two things that I've found I've employed over the last month or so that have really been, been key. The first one was I decided early on to focus on the core of my job as a pharmacist. And so every single time I'm evaluating the literature um, or seeing this new format for preprints or so on and so forth, the question for me stays the same. My job is to optimize the benefit to risk ratio for a particular medication therapy for my patients. And that to me has been a guiding light while uh, if ever I start to feel overwhelmed with the literature that's out there. Um, and that helps to kind of reorient me. And I'll ask myself the question, you know, is this therapy, does, is it up to snuff? Does it, does it meet my bar to, you know, take it myself, to give it to a loved one, to give it to my patients? Um, and with that frame and perspective in mind, it has helped me to sift through um, what is a lot of noise uh, that's been, been coming out lately, some of which is okay and promising, and then a lot of which is, is not so good. Um, so despite how desperately we all want something to work against this virus, for me, I have to stay rational and protect my patients uh, from, say, receiving a regimen like truckloads of oral daily ribavirin that will likely cause more harm uh, than good. Another strategy that was really key for me during this time period as it regards to large amounts of data was to quickly lean on my network. So I accepted the challenge of analyzing the data, but I must say I owe a huge shout out to, for example, our ID Pharmacy Fellow, Jeanette Bouchard, 
and our IDPGY2 pharmacy resident, Stephanie Sheely. They've both spent countless hours with me, especially in those early days, sifting through all that data. I'm talking like 2 a.m., we're reading on MedRx um, IV, we're kind of drafting protocols. Um, we kind of divided and conquered the literature as much as we could and then came back together as a team, which was very helpful. Um, lastly, I very frequently spot checked my interpretations of the data, which I'm doing in rapid fashion with the opinions of folks that I trust. So I know, um, Aaron, you've been on my speed dial. So has Jason, folks like Emily Heil, Zara Kasamali Escobar, um, who was one of my past co-fellows when we were in ID training together. So, and she was in the, the outbreak in Washington state very early on um, and many, many more. So I, I have leaned on my network both locally um, and honestly, internationally, to make sure that while I'm doing this at record-breaking speed, I'm not missing anything. And what I found with data coming out this fast, this furious, and potentially this flawed, the more eyes on it, the better. We all end up seeing slightly different issues or applicability of each paper or sometimes just abstract uh, that emerges. Yeah, Julie and Jason, I think you both make excellent points. I know high-dose ribavirin was absolutely my first heart attack as well. And when in February, I, I try to reframe this and think about, you know, how we got from, from there to here. And I remember in February coming out and thinking like, okay, compassionate use remdesivir and or remdesivir trials, we'll try to get patients into those or if they qualify for compassionate use, okay. And then there's nothing else. Like I remember at the beginning being like, there's no treatments. And then you start to hear about anything and everything that has potential in vitro activity against this virus as a potential treatment option because people want to find an effective treatment. And so high-dose ribavirin was one of the first ones. And it, I remember that wake-up call of like, wow, we could seriously hurt patients if we use these drugs without really thinking about it because everyone's reacting. And so I know early March, like the first week of March, the first time we took a stab at sitting down and writing a treatment guideline, it was actually more a safety guideline of a, here are all the things that there's not a lot of data to support and that we know can cause patients harm. And then here are the one or two drugs that don't have as much adverse events. There's some in vitro data, so maybe we would use these. But to be clear, these weren't treatment guidelines because none of these drugs have been proven to be to shown that they're effective treatment. Even with hydroxychloroquine, we have in vitro data. We have an abstract that says 100 patients in China did well. We have French data, which I know Jason has thoughts about that we'll get to in a minute. Um, and that's it, right? And so these aren't treatment guidelines. To me, they're almost like safety guidelines. And But that's really hard because I, I know we've all had this discussion. It puts us in an incredibly difficult position to be the one to say, you know, there is no effective therapy and I want there to be an effective therapy more than anyone in the world. And I feel like when I tell people there's not an effective therapy and the data have substantial flaws that I'm like crushing their soul because they want to give something that's going to treat the virus. And that unfortunately just isn't the case right now. We don't have any therapy that we know is effective against this virus, but that's a really, really hard conversation to have because obviously I want to find an effective therapy more than anyone. Um, but we need to be honest and, and clear about what the data demonstrate. And there's a lot of limitations with the data in front of us. Um, so Jason, why don't, you, why don't you start us off? What do you think is the most concerning issue right now with the data that are available? Yeah, uh, boy, that's a, it's a loaded question, right? Where do, where do we even start with that? Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of issues with what is going on right now with publications. Um, 
again, I feel like a lot of the publications are actually just blogs that are making it into prestigious journals and opinions are becoming fact. Um, but I, I think more importantly than that is the peer review process. And so again, you're in this, this, this situation where you have this rapidly developing pandemic, right? And as we talked about already, people are desperate for an answer. They want helpful treatment, right? Everybody wants that. Every, every one of us wants to be able to offer a good therapy for our patients. And, and so that's kind of the backdrop. But then also people are so busy with patient care. They're so overwhelmed with what's going on at their institution, the sheer number of publications that they're really more susceptible to misinformation. And so what happens is, is that, you know, investigators do these small studies it doesn't go through the normal peer review process, or at least they haven't gone through that process yet. And data that just gets put up in preprint formulation is taken as good evidence because one, people, again, because everybody's so overwhelmed, they don't have the time to think through what they're actually seeing. They probably, the vast majority of frontline providers do not have the time to look at this. And so what you find is that when you add that kind of situation with the interest that the public is going to have as well, right? So, cause again, they're looking for hope just like we are. We want a therapy for our patients as well. You add in the blue check marks on Twitter who all have comments and hundreds of thousands of followers and you really have a recipe for disaster. Um, poorly done studies that would be rejected on first pass are now the basis for evidence. And, and, and again, the, the preprints is just one level of the, of, of the issue here. There's now a group, right, and, and that seems to have gone past the idea of the preprint or trying to get something peer-reviewed. They just post quote-unquote manuscripts on their hospital's website. And because people are interested in particularly in findings they portrayed or claimed to have earlier, again, no one is even questioning that evidence. Uh, the, the people that want to support a therapeutic regimen are really going through that. And so I think as we talked about earlier, and Julie, I, I really appreciated what you said, because uh, again, these aren't benign compounds that we're giving to our patients, right? These are, we have sick patients that are coming in. They have a lot of negative prognostic factors already for damage to various organs. And without the peer review process to strengthen the evidence that's available and to ensure appropriate analyses are done, we're I mean, we're potentially harming patients in a lot of ways, right? So the most obvious is we're giving them unhelpful and or toxic therapies. But again, if we've already made up our mind that one of these therapy, therapies is the thing we should be doing, we might become blind to some other therapeutic intervention that might actually improve the care of patients. And, and so I think that that's where we find ourselves right now. And, and I think that we as a group, as a, as a, as a discipline, as a specialty, um, and really as a medical community need to appreciate now that, you know, this isn't going to change in the near future, right? Preprints driving care does not appear to be subsiding anytime soon. And I think it's really critical that as clinicians, that as, again, stewards, it's really on us to provide this real-time peer review the best we can. Again, the goal is not to debunk therapies. We want these therapies to work as well, but 
the evidence has to be interpreted and shown for what it is, right? And if there, even if the, you know, you see something like less people progress to severe disease, we all want that to be true with these therapeutic regimens. But if it's not adequately studied and you can't make those claims, then you have to be honest but, uh, uh, what you're looking at. And, and really the, the, the issue that I see, Aaron, is that, you know, in addition to, to what we've talked about before, I, I fear that in a lot of situations that, you know, we can only be so successful in this because there are some, unfortunately, that have already made up their mind with regards to the situation and they're just going to selectively use evidence to support what they want to support. And I think it's important for us to, again, not to rain on a parade and I, and I hope people don't see that as what we're doing, but we need to appreciate that this is it's just not how you practice medicine, right? We practice evidence-based medicine. It's not in the best interest of our patients to just blindly accept something as a magic cure when it may or may not be. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm honestly not sure I can sound up any better than Jason just did. The only thing that I would add to that is this whole issue of what has happened with this pandemic um, and how we've come to interpret data is not altogether unexpected. Uh, we are human beings. Uh, this pandemic has been devastating for all of us. And particularly as healthcare workers, our most universal motivation is to help others. So I agree with you, Erin. It is absolutely gut-wrenching to have a patient, a physician, a nurse, turn and ask you, what more can we do and feel like you don't have a sufficient answer? So I completely understand the inherent bias that we have toward accepting any whiff of positive data, whether it's from France or China or, or even our own local anecdotes that we um, have experienced um, during these ensuing weeks. That being said, I 100% agree with Jason that we cannot lower our bar for what constitutes high quality objective data for determining clinical safety and effectiveness within the realm of medicine. And in many ways, we decided early on that that's the core tenant behind all of SIDP's response to this pandemic to date. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you both summarized it perfectly in that we all want to do something, but first we need to do no harm. And outside of just healthcare workers asking us what we can do, I don't know if you guys feel this as well, but it's really hard for me every day to field texts from family and friends about, you know, should I take this medication or do I need to go do this? Or, and when I say no and explain why, and then there, you can just sense that there's that like, oh, so there's nothing I can do right now. And it's really, really hard that the answer to that question, unfortunately, is no, but that's the data that we have in front of us. And that's how we can keep each other as safe as possible and our patients as safe as possible. But it's, it is tough. It is not an easy time right now. Um, but SIDP, as you pointed out, um, is trying to help with this as best as possible. So for anyone listening right now, there are resources available on the SIDP website. If you go to sidp.org backslash COVID-19, um, there are, uh, there's a new SIDP YouTube page with videos for each of these therapies. So it walks through the drug, what it is, what the proposed mechanism of action for COVID-19 would be, the data in vitro, and if any clinical data exist, and, and clearly analyzing where we stand with each of those proposed experimental therapies. Uh, so those YouTube videos are an excellent resource. Journal clubs will be coming to that website shortly, um, and there's some other resources on that website as well, so we'd encourage you to check that out. 
Another excellent resource is one of our own SIDP members, Tim Gauthier, who's an ID pharmacist down in Miami, Florida. You guys may know him. He runs idstewardship.com, which is another excellent resource. He has a fantastic landing page that he's updating almost daily with COVID-19 resources. So you can check that out. And then Tim is also putting together a webinar entitled COVID-19 Resources for Pharmacists, What You Need to Know. This will be available for ACPE and BCIDP uh, CE credit for pharmacists when it's available on the SIDP website. So check back on that in the coming weeks. And Tim's going to walk through all of the experimental agents, issues related to dosing. I mean, that's something we don't even have time to get into on this podcast, um, but interpreting in vitro data and trying to correlate that to what kind of dose you would need in a human um, administration, pharmacokinetics, et cetera. So um, keep on the lookout for that excellent resource coming from Tim and SIDP. Um, but let's, so segueing into resources and education and trying to, you know, we've talked about how difficult it is to take all of these data and make the best decision possible. How are you guys doing that? So aside from you just reading and understanding and talking to each other and us, how are you and your stewardship teams or your infectious diseases teams? Critical care is obviously an essential component of the care of patients with COVID-19 since there, there is no antiviral therapy. It's, it's supportive critical care. So those, um, those teams are imperative to taking care of these patients. But how are you delegating tasks across your team members? Um, and what are the relationships at your institution between ID, critical care, et cetera, in developing treatment pathways? I mean, I think it's the typical ways that you would expect an antimicrobial stewardship program to lead um, in any kind of infectious syndrome. Uh, so just to give you a few examples, um, I noted very quickly that there was no clear therapeutic strategy for COVID-19. So we jumped into developing our first um, interim treatment uh, guidance. So, and we called it a guidance on purpose because to your point, we didn't have any treatment recommendations per se, but it was more like, here are helpful pearls that'll help you stay away from, from doing harm and some helpful tips on pharmacology and dosing of, of potential agents that stand the best chance of having that optimal benefit to risk ratio. So we did this in collaboration with our ID division um, in a record of like three days, meaning like from one Friday night when I got the call that we had our first COVID positive patient to like the next Monday afternoon, boom, it was like ready to go. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, don't ask me how much has changed since then. Um, I We joke we're on like version 72 or something silly like that. Um, but I think that's the nature of the beast. And I know many other stewardship programs have done similar um, strategies uh, when it comes to providing some guidance. We've also leveraged our existing stewardship skills of tracking and reporting as it applies to COVID-19. So we jumped immediately on anticipating potential drug shortages and managing daily drug supplies. Um, and much of the credit for that absolutely goes to my stewardship colleague, Joey Cohn at Prisma Health Midlands. Um, he's our numbers guy. And he would be like, Julie, what is it that you think is gonna be the most promising? We would talk about it. He'd be like, here's what we have, here's what I can get. Um, and so already we naturally started delegating. I was focused really on the literature and then he could focus on a lot of the logistics and supply um, amongst all the other things he does in his day job. Uh, we worked also with our clinical trials department because we quickly saw that we didn't have any um, uh, defined or FDA approved therapies. So 
then research becomes the main engine um, and probably the most appropriate uh, method to, to explore uh, experimental agents in our patients. We worked with them to enroll in ongoing studies, become active sites, and develop new studies for what we felt were the most promising agents. Um, hats off there goes to absolutely our ID um, outpatient pharmacist, Caroline Derrick, who has a lot of expertise in prospective uh, trials, phase three HIV trials, and so on and so forth. Um, she, along with a group of like really 10, 20 other core people really helped get us active as a remdesivir clinical trial site. And we're still working on so many other trials um, as well. So in a way, that's actually been nice to see that some of these things that we always wished we could do more of, like clinical research, now we have the impetus and the, the resources and attention uh, so we can actually use COVID-19 to kind of get some of that um, clinical trials uh, up and running even more so than we were doing before, which is great. Um, tiny silver lining there. Um, we also restricted any new outpatient hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine prescriptions in our health system because we were very quickly starting to see that um, there was this uh, curious uptick in outpatient <laughs> prescribing um, from a lot of people that happened to have the same last name as maybe the prescriber. That was unique. Um, so we anticipated that Again, understanding and having compassion for folks being uh, scared and, and, and desperate during this, this pandemic. Um, we provided local education, let our local rheumatologists know that hydroxychloroquine was probably going to go on shortage, which like two days later than it did, letting our other primary care providers know, here's how we're handling it. We're going to restrict it, but your patients that are on it chronically, we will try our best to preserve our supply for them. That was really a joint effort between our pharmacy director um, and Brandon Bookstaver, who's part of our stewardship team. Um, and then just all the regular stuff. We built targeted alerts for prospective audit and feedback of relevant experimental agents. So hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir, tocilizumab, and so on and so forth. We built order sets for the COVID-19 inpatient admissions with what we thought were the optimal dosing um, for um, these potential agents that we accepted as um, viable experimental agents. Um, and we're doing all those things that we usually do as stewards, just on a, a terribly kind of crunched timetable. Um, the last comment that I'll make is uh, it's been really, honestly to me, it's been heartwarming and bolstering to see how enthusiastic other uh, provider service lines like our critical care team, like our emergency department colleagues, um, like our surgeons, uh, everybody is interested in finding the optimal pathway forward. Um, so we absolutely have been bringing those folks into the fold as we can um, where necessary. Julie, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. Um, I think the collaboration has been really cool um, and people are leaning on others' expertise and, and kind of doing this all together. And I think that you also brought up a really good point about, you know, from a stewardship standpoint, and it's not always a, a natural intersection with clinical research, but I think it's particularly important for something like this where a lot of us are directing patients to clinical trials wherever possible, particularly since, you know, getting any other investigational agent in the past 24 hours can be an issue with getting in that trial. So making sure you have all those pieces in place so that 
you don't have some treatment regimen that's going to get started in the ED, for example, if your goal is going to be to direct them to a clinical trial. So I, I think that that's a huge role for stewardship. Again, and, and I, I, I think of it in an optimistic way, like you stated, and, and hopefully that'll, moving forward, will help build those relationships, will help allow those types of things in the future. And, and, and much like you said, I won't just reiterate what you said, but again, a lot of what our stewardship program has done or what our stewardship team has done is, is very similar to what we, we do for everything, right? So I think one of our biggest roles to go back to the beginning of this pod, right, is that no one is up on the literature, right? Again, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just that they can't go through all of those articles. They don't know the intricacies. And so one thing that we've focused on is doing thorough reviews of anything that's coming out that might be directing care, providing those summaries, being completely transparent with what we're interpreting and why, and really just making those summary documents available. For example, at Michigan, you know, the literature summary for hydroxychloroquine is right there on our guideline as part of the guideline. Guideline because again, we're admitting that we don't know, but here's what we're doing right now and why. And so getting that to all end users from infectious diseases, from frontline providers, from to pharmacists, for all of these different groups about how we got to where we are. Um, other things, again, are, are very similar to what we normally do from a stewardship standpoint, right? If you, if you follow the evidence, you know, bacterial co-infection is very rare in these patients. And so education surrounding that, that even though these patients are really sick, the likelihood of a bacterial co-infection is, is very rare. Teaching them the procalcitonins, we've seen have been all over the map, right? Um, and so like maybe not all your typical signs are gonna be there to helpful and, and really directing them to things like the white count or those types of things that might give you a little signal. And then one thing that I've noticed start to come up a little bit is that, you know, we deal with, again, this is a rapidly developing situation. We have a scenario where our test is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, not something new, right? We've dealt with this in ID for in many different situations, but we, but we don't have a perfect test. You can have false negatives. And so when we're doing our perspective audit and feedback, right, and we're looking at patients who are on cap therapies or HAP for whatever pneumonia therapies, and, you know, they, they have a negative SARS-CoV-2 test, but they have all the hallmarks, right? They, it's a patient who has lymphopenia, right? It's a patient that is reporting that they lost their sense of smell before they came in. All of those little signals that this might be COVID, I think it, it's enforcing that with the medicine teams, right? It's saying that, yeah, I get that this, but we might want to be thinking this could be going on here. Because again, that has huge implications. Even if the patient's responding, they're not severely ill. I mean, there, there are huge potential contagiousness issues surrounding that and, and continued spread. And so I think that, that our stewardship team tries to work in, in those areas as well. Yeah, I think you guys bring up excellent points, and I won't reiterate the points you hit, but speaking from I, working at UPMC, which is a 30-hospital system across three states, I like Julie's phrase of silver lining. So for me, as quickly as this has moved and as ginormous of a task as this is, I think the silver lining is that a 30 like for me at least, seeing a 30-hospital system really come together and make one guideline for the whole system and try, appreciating that all the hospitals are very different from the main 
transplant center to the cancer center to the trauma center to the community hospitals to Maryland to New York to Pennsylvania, um, but working under one team one guideline having represent representation from all these different specialties on that team constantly commuting communicating with the pharmacists at the community hospitals, et cetera. I've met more people in the UPMC system in the past six weeks than I'd met in two years. And it's like so <laughs> nice and cool. I mean, like as cheesy as it is, it's so, I'm like, I have all these new friends that I only know their voice. Um, <laughs> it's true. Just, no, it's it, absolutely true. It is. And it's like, wow, there's all these really great people and we've come together to work on these things. And we make decisions very, very quickly, which I like want to just shout out to emergency medicine people as a tangent because one, not only are they at the front lines of facing patients admitting for COVID-19 and they're doing an amazing job putting their lives on the line every day, but also that's the specialty that makes the most decisions per minute of any specialty in medicine and they do it all day, every day. And I'm like, my brain hurts after 12 <laughs> hours a day of COVID. So anyone in emergency medicine is a hero forever. Um, but making these decisions extremely quickly, I'll say other silver linings, we've seen information technology specialists just like they're getting things done so quickly, so amazingly to help us put safety alerts in place. Um, in our system, we have a pop-up alert to the provider, the nurse, and the pharmacist on every single COVID-19 experimental therapy that says this medication has not been proven effective for the treatment of COVID-19 as like a pause and stop and think that we still don't know what we're doing here. And, and honestly, most of those medications are completely restricted and um, we're not using them because we have safety concerns. Um, Expansion of practice is another thing that people have come together and allowed and we're seeing people really practice at the top of their license. Um, for example, we quickly passed through system P&T a collaborative practice agreement that allows a pharmacist to change any hydroxychloroquine order for COVID-19 to five days because that is we don't we're not recommending any therapy for COVID-19. We don't know if hydroxychloroquine works, but um, if that is the duration in the clinical trial that we're enrolling patients in. And so if a provider orders hydroxychloroquine and the duration isn't set or it's longer than five days, pharmacists just change it to five days and sign it per protocol. So things like that, like empowering your frontline staff to make decisions and putting systems in place that let people help people. From a stewardship perspective, doing things like recognizing that we're going to have to change and, and change our, our standard rules because it's not a standard time. So linazolid is unrestricted now for patients with COVID because because it's a lot easier to give linazolid BID than deal with vancomycin levels and monitoring and nursing staff and going in and out of the room and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so if there is co-infection or whatnot, like we're allowing patients to use linazolid or just ceftriaxone, we're a little more liberal with because it's a once a day medication or dependent is a once a day medication if they do have bacterial infection. So um, not letting perfection get in the way of the good. Um, is is really important in these kinds of times and realizing that you're going to put out something and almost immediately realize there's a typo or a mistake because you're doing things so fast and that's so being kind of kind and gracious with each other and having this collaborative discussion and just updating these documents almost daily um, we created an admission power plan that was led by the ICU service center and care team, but had representation from every specialty for admitting patients with COVID and so things like that have been really cool to see come together. Um, but coming together is hard. And so despite how much we love Zoom calls and how good we all are at them now, or pick your favorite conference call platform, um, it's, it's weird and it's hard to not see people or know them and only be meeting people through conference calls and effectively spend your entire day on the phone and making decisions in that platform is really hard. Um, and then once you make these decisions quickly, you have to communicate that to your frontline providers and tell them what your most recent guideline recommends and you 
you have to do that while appreciating that tomorrow you might have a completely different recommendation. And so education's tough in these times. So in terms of that, what's working for you guys to get information out and then what's, what's not working in terms of messaging and, and providing this education once you've done the, the analysis of the literature? Yeah, sure, I can hop in there, although I'd like to talk more about using Linnae's lit from our St. Ammonium, but I guess that's a, a different pod for a different day. Um, Jason but, just wants to wax poetic about yeah, Linnae's lit. Yeah, Let's do idea. it. Anyway, <laughs> Why did it take COVID for us to get there, part one? Yeah, seriously. Um, we could derail on that conversation in a hurry. So Megan Jeffries, I, I, I know what she's thinking out there. I was she's just going to say, <laughs> Megan Jeffries is in her office fist pumping as she listens to this <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. Oh, man. But, you know, back, back to the kind of the, the question. I mean, and again, I think the, the key piece of this story is that it's a collaborative effort, right? And so I think that what we've been successful with um, again, it hasn't all been successful, but our, our stewardship team, our uh, ID division, our administration, our end users have, have really been lockstep in our approach since this has commenced. I think given the unknowns, you know, the urgency, the, the rapidly changing information, the hyper awareness on the, the end of the clinician as well as the patient, right? From the media spotlight, we, we've really focused, and we talked a little bit about this before, but we really focus on complete transparency with what we are doing and why we are doing it. And, and again, we talk about shout outs to different groups throughout here. And, and I think that for me, I think our stewardship team has simply been amazing throughout this. Uh, I, I can't speak highly enough of, the, of the, the group that have put countless hours into assessing the evidence, you know, developing treatment paradigms, as Julie said, changing those on a daily base, basis. Um, and then in addition to that, they're either rounding on these patients, they're providing stewardship services for the entire hospital. And, and, I, and, and I think that it kind of just exemplifies for me is that, Aaron, what's working best or, or the things that are working is because we're making it work, we're committed to making it work. But to specifically answer your question, uh, as I said, we've been meeting daily as a stewardship committee. Uh, we're discussing what the latest issues are. If there's new data, one of us is looking at that, assessing it, analyzing it. We're continually updating our recommendations. I think one thing that's been important for us is, again, it comes back to that communication and collaboration, but we've been working really closely with our frontline ID docs who have been seeing this patient, uh, taking, I mean, again, in, in an area where you don't have good evidence, we're incorporating their experience into our recommendation. And I think that that's appropriate and important. And then our administration at the institution has just been really great at, at helping us get that information out to the frontline providers. Supporting us, I think, has been really important, particularly in situations where, you know, we know that no matter what we say about hydroxychloroquine, whether we recommend it or we recommend against it, we know that's going to be really controversial. We know that a lot of people are going to have a lot of opinions about that. And it's been really nice to see. And, and I think where we've been most successful is where they've supported us. Again, we've made the case for why we're doing what we're doing, but we've gotten the support from that. And, and I think that it all comes back to that, Aaron that you know we've said this a bunch of times on this podcast already we've said this a bunch of times over the last six weeks but it's really true that 
you know, we're all in this together and we're not discounting what anybody thinks. We're taking their input, we're taking them and we're trying to come up with a great plan or the best plan that we can for our patients. And I, and I think it's always important where we're successful is, is to come back to that, that, that we're all in this together. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Particularly, administration has been phenomenal, and I imagine that's true across every hospital network in the country and in the world. Um, infection prevention leadership, quality leadership, safety leadership, medicine leadership. Um, at least in my system, we have a daily leadership huddle that I think 500 people are on that call. There's <laughs> daily email report. They send a PDF report out every day. So honestly, like shout out to the you know, person working in the communications office that's putting together this content every single day um, at UPMC. It's a girl named Caitlin Mayak, and she's just like an unsung hero that updates the website every day and updates these PDFs. And I email her, we made this tweak. Can you add zinc to the treatment document as a no evidence for this today? Can you add this one line and update the website? She's like, yeah, doing this at eight o'clock at night. Um, those kinds of people, right? They make the the whole the whole system go. Um, we have a town hall. I don't know if you guys are doing stuff like that too, but there's like a live Microsoft Teams that anyone can view in and anyone can ask any question. And that just that transparency, just that forum to be able to ask what you're afraid of and worried about and the anxieties that we all have right now has been super helpful. Um, other things, we opened up our infectious diseases grand rounds happens every Thursday and used to just be for infectious diseases. Now we do it as a Microsoft Lives team event and it's sent to the entire health system. So everyone can join into ID Grand Rounds and we, um, myself and then a physician, do an hour overview of like the clinical data and the treatment literature data um, just to help increase that transparency and, and communication. And Jason, I want to quickly comment on something else you said and then I want Julie to share with us what she's been doing. Um, but just in stewardship, like daily rounding on other patients, we all, every everyone in healthcare has non-COVID patients to take care of too. And mm -hmm. it's um, <laughs> really hard to not forget about them, honestly, and to keep those other things going as well. And um, I, I think I tweeted this, but I like got a, I had our stewardship approval phone and I got called for Clinda and I put the patient on Cefazolin. Um Megan Jeffries is singing again in her office as she listens, but <laughs> I like put the patient on the and I was like, oh, that was so nice and refreshing and like, but those patients need taken care of too. And so keeping that in, that in mind throughout all of this and, and, and um, trying to stay up with that as well. But Julie, your turn. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would echo everything that you guys are saying. Um, very similar things have been done by our administration, by physician, nursing, infection prevention leaders, and so on. Um, I'll, as just an example, we have an ID citywide meeting. Um, and so our, um, division chief kind of puts together, um, a forum where all the, um, anyone related to infectious diseases, medicine, microbiology, anyone is welcome to come. Um, and we usually have like, I don't know, 20, 25 people is a really nice dinner that everybody gets and so on and so forth. They do this every month. Uh, they transformed it onto a Zoom call. We had like a hundred people and we, it turned into very quick presentations and mostly just a forum. Um, this was relatively early on. Uh, from when the WHO declared it a pandemic. And so everybody was in the thick of it. 
And you're talking health systems across the state for at least South Carolina that are typically competitors. That was not the atmosphere at all. It was very much collegial. It was very much, what are you guys doing? What are your challenges? What are your solutions? So on and so forth. I think everybody's really in this together, which again, silver lining uh, to me, at least that helps energize me to kind of keep going when, when I know that we're all really tired. Um, Talking to your original question about how we have uh, maintained efficient communications, um, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, turn your webcams on. So we had a few conference calls with, and I don't know if anybody's been on a conference call with 50 people lately. Chances are probably yes. Uh, they're not very successful. Um, when all of a sudden we turned on our webcams, uh, we made that mistake at first and then we're like, you know what, let's just try this and see. And it was so, it was relieving to see everyone's face on that grid. You know, you make the joke about it looking like the Brady Bunch, so on and so forth. But, um, being able to see people's faces when you're discussing these data, I think, uh, it goes a long way to the transparency that both you and Jason have talked about, um, in terms of debating rationales. Um, making sure that everyone feels like they are heard. And then it just expedites the decision-making because we do have to make these decisions fast. So that's been really helpful for us as a very simple way to really leverage our technology. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Huge shout out to all of our IT personnel, our webmasters, um, and so on that have been uh, there. It's, it's really um, encouraging to see the unsung heroes in like every corner. Cause I agree with you COVID time. I mean, you send something out at like nine 15 at night and people respond and you're like, Whoa, okay. Um, that's different. Not sure how long that's going to last for, cause we all need to like sleep and uh, make sure we have good mental health. But at least for the last few weeks, it's everybody's been all hands on deck. Um, with regards to disseminating information, we do have key administrative reps in our health system that ensure health system leadership is aware of the protocols and pathways that we have um, and can disseminate all that information to all providers. So very similar to the daily newsletter that you were talking about, PDF, so on and so forth. They also have helped loop us in when they hear about new ideas and initiatives from various provider groups. We all know that someone will hear something random about, oh, diperitamol, or, you know, what about zinc, or what about this, what about that? So they have fed that back to us so that we can start answering those questions that um, our health community is having. We also leveraged our existing stewardship communication mechanisms by posting our latest resources to the local webpage. Um, we also have an app that mirrors the same information. The app has been kind of clutch because it actually provides push notifications for when we update um, our guidance, which has been very fast. And I know quite a few providers at our health system that, that have been looking for those and monitoring those. Uh, within the pharmacy, we created a dedicated COVID-19 newsletter that has more specific data for like how to profile these new medications that folks aren't necessarily familiar with in a safe and effective way. Um, given the constraints on providers' time, we have taken the strategy of keeping our guidance docs and communications relatively brief and really getting cutting to the point um, for the information. However, we have more detailed summaries available for clinicians upon request, which we do email um, or provide. And then, of course, we have pretty extensive files internally for ID and stewardship to use. Um, I'll just I'll just say Google Drive um, is our friend for sure. So with all that said, I sincerely echo Jason's uh, sentiments regarding my own appreciation for 
our stewardship team, our ID division, our pharmacy department, our administrators, other partners. So many folks are working around the clock. Um, and so I really, I can't say how much um, I've been appreciative of, of all that work. And it really does, it's a silver lining in all this for me because we are all in this to help our patients. We are all in this as a community and it feels that way, which is good to see. Yeah, that was beautifully said, Julie. I agree. It really does feel that way. And I, this is like completely out of context right here, but I just don't want this podcast to go any further without the other people we need to mention that are absolute heroes. And this is the microbiology lab staff and all the microbiology technologists mm-hmm. who are developing in-house assays and working around the clock to get testing as fast as possible. Um, those people are amazing and, and incredible and we appreciate them. Um, the other thing I like that you said is turning on your webcams. So it seems simple, but it does keep you honest and earnest because since you're not in a face-to-face meeting um, to have people involved. Um, Like for example, if our webcams weren't on right now, we couldn't, this podcast I feel would be less effective because we wouldn't see Jason in his Penguins jersey and we wouldn't see Julie just looking fabulous as always in her South Carolina and Oasis home. So like it's exponentially improved the quality of this, this podcast episode. So just so, you guys, just, just so everyone knows that, they, that Jason's in his Penguins jersey as per usual. Um, all right. One last question to bring this podcast home. It's something that we all are involved with, and that is a blessing and a curse. So social media. So social media has changed the world, really, in the way that science and information is disseminated, both within our institutions, amongst our friends, across the world, across colleagues. Blessing in that I know of many, you know, global trials that have launched by people connecting on social media. We saw the University of Minnesota in COVID launch a um, prophylaxis trial with hydroxychloroquine, and that is exactly how that should be used is in the context of a clinical trial. So University of Minnesota launches this clinical trial, yay, and then via Twitter, um, colleagues in Canada saw that and were like, we should do that in our country as well and in Canada. And so then Canada launches a national Canadian version of the Minnesota trial and they found each other and heard about that first through Twitter. So social media can be amazing in that and enhance science and it can also be terrible and atrocious and awful because it can <laughs> one tweet that is you know, misinformed or incorrect can get retweeted 200,000 times. And then here we are frantically trying to stop people from giving azithromycin in combination with hydroxychloroquine and causing <laughs> undue harm. So I'll let you each comment on social media. How uh, can it help? How are you communicating with people via social media? What's, what's the deal? Yeah, so this is a very important point for me, um, not just as the communications director within SIDP, but also as a personal uh, Twitter and social media user. So I, I ch- honestly, I try to keep it simple. Uh, be knowledgeable, be transparent, be respectful. For me, all of those things relate to being a professional, and they are the same way that I've always tried to handle social media um, within our field, uh, both, again, for my personal accounts and for SADP as an organization. Um, Speaking a little bit more about me personally, I try to focus my messaging on social media on the evidence, avoiding more subjective or or opinion-based discussions. And uh, just based on who I am, naturally, I prefer to highlight pertinent details and discuss nuances. um, And I tend to avoid making sweeping generalizations. Again, that doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but for me, uh, that tends to work really well and it's staying true to myself. Um, as as a clinician. 
if I'm discussing a preprint or a paper that I haven't read yet in full, because everybody knows you, you see something, you get excited, you want to retweet it, I try my best to be transparent and let my follower, followers know those relevant details uh, for the status of like where I am in my literature evaluation so that they can judge for themselves, um, almost like a disclaimer, uh, if you will. Um, if I'm ever doubtful about posting something, I think we've all had those moments where we type something out and we reach the end and we're like, ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I should hit post on that. <laughs> I try to listen to that gut. Um, if ever I feel a whiff of that, anything other than true confidence and comfort, I, I stay quiet and I see where the conversation goes. And that has uh, led, it's probably gotten me out of um, some problems that I otherwise would would have stepped into um, with being too quick um, to to post or be vocal about something. So at a basic level, I I want my posts same way as like any information that I give in any format to help educate and empower folks to use antimicrobials in an optimal fashion. If ever I'm not doing that, then I really shouldn't be tweeting um, as a ID pharmacist. Um, so those are some of the ways that I've kind of focused on social media. It's, to be honest, it's just my personal experience. Um, I learn a lot from how others do it as well. Uh, having been on Twitter, for example, for uh, quite a few years now, I've noticed how some people are a little bit braver with what they say, or they take the time to do tutorials or they inject humor, which uh, attracts a lot of other eyes and different audiences and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's a whole podcast in and of itself for how to manage your <laughs> social media. Um, but those three things really are the most important for me. Be knowledgeable, know what you're talking about, be able to go deep dive, be transparent with what is and what is not out there, and then always be respectful. Yeah, I think first and foremost, uh, of course I'm wearing a Penguin jersey. It's, it's the hockey playoffs time of year, and, and this is as good as I got right now, right? I can only watch so many simulated Xbox Penguins games before I need to, you know, get a little bit more involved here. So, Or you can follow them live tweet old games on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> like, I it's really, not live, right? I, I wouldn't Dude. be live, but I, I have enjoyed the 2009 Stanley Cup run again. It's been very enjoyable. Yeah. Thank you to um, the person running the Penguins Twitter, getting us all through. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but, focus. But, but I mean, I largely agree with what Julie said from a social media standpoint. This is a, I mean, this is a crazy time for a lot of reasons, but man, it goes fat. Like, I mean, 10 minutes later and the narrative is already set, right? And so, you know, when you sit and you look at this, there's this there's this push to like, this paper comes out at five o'clock and so you have to comment on it on these platforms by quarter after five or five, th I mean, because people start to say things and usually they're abstract readers and problematically giving just the complete superficial overview of it. And then what, what, what I would argue or what I try to do personally is I, I mean, this isn't a race. Um, there's no rush to be the first person to comment on the remdesivir, remdesivir compassionate use data set. And so, I mean, it's imperative to not just blindly comment on these things. Be thoughtful, right? It's the stuff we've talked about before. Take your time, read the paper, think through it, do what you normally do. Again, we don't have a horse in this race. We all want a therapy to do well. It's not our job or our goal to either 
put a positive spin or a negative spin on a new publication that comes out. It's if you're if you're going to play in that space and you want to be if you you want to help the discussion, then you do what you normally do. And again, it's a great way to end the pod in a lot of ways because it's how we started the pod too. That you know you need to critically look at what is there. Is it informative? Does it change what I want to do? And again, don't worry if you've been tagged into a thread that is 700 tweets long at this point in time discussing the topic. You, you need to, to do the normal process. And if you're going to engage, I would encourage you to do it well-informed. Um, yeah, I think that's all I got, Erin. Yeah, I mean, I think what you both said is incredibly accurate and in how we should use social media to our advantage and make sure it doesn't become our disadvantage. Um, I mean, even if one of you guys tweet something, I think the world of both of you and you're really smart and really good. But if I read a tweet of yours, I'm not just going to take that as Bible. I need to I need to validate that before I before I communicate the information I learned in your tweet to my peers and my colleagues or use it to take care of my patients. It's a great start to be like, oh, this is uh, this is something that you know, my, my colleagues are saying, and this is science coming out, it's a great start to that, but I still need to make sure that I understand that data or someone else on my team has deep dived into that data on their own accord and not just take people's words for, for what you see in, in, in 280 characters, because it's super important that we're substantiating that. Erin, yeah. I would just, I would just comment on that, that that's a good, good comment in general, right? I think that, you know, we didn't really explicitly state this earlier, but Again, we are sifting through a lot of data really quickly, and it's going to be natural to miss things in doing that and, and, mm -hmm. and, and having a double check, having a triple check. I mean, anything that we've done, at, like when we put a new document together for Michigan, I've reached out to both of you, Is this, does this make sense? Am I looking at this the right way? All those types of things. And mm -hmm. again, Twitter is a natural, again, any social media or any way that you're communicating is a natural extension to that. But don't be ashamed to have a second or third or fourth or fifth look at any of this because we are all, again, the days never end, right? And so we, again, it comes back to the cheesy statement, but it's also factual that, you know, we're in this together and, and it's kind of that same concept again. And that's one of the things, honestly, that I love about SIDP members on social media. I would hope that Aaron, you would, you know, respectfully discuss different <laughs> things that you saw um, because I absolutely Trust, validate. Stuff. Uh, well, and not just that, it, it's not that I may have missed something per se in, in whatever it was that I tweeted, but um, there's also just different experiences and we all have different minds in the way that we approach things and patient populations and so on and so forth. I 100% look forward to the responses that I get back from our SIDP members on the stuff that any of us put out there, myself included, I am honestly relying on that crowdsourcing, which I think has, I mean, if done right, um, putting all of these brains on the same problem, um, you're going to end up, I truly believe you're going to end up with a better interpretation at the other end of it. So I think that's a good message uh, for us to kind of end on and hopefully more and more of that will continue not just on social media but in medical literature and and, and more yeah um, and just 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 wanted to come on one thing there sorry to cut you off there Aaron but I, I think that 
the same thing, don't be afraid to ignore some of the other comments that you're going to get in that space as well. When big donkey hat um, has strong feelings about whatever topic, uh, don't, don't worry about them. Um, ignore it. Just move on. Don't take it personally. Don't engage uh, the destructive part that can be there too. Yeah, I think that 100%. I know I checked on Jason when he had a particular uh, Twitter thread that ended up going viral. She's like, you okay? He's like, yep, I'm being quiet. I'm like, okay, I think that's good. <laughs> just checking on you. I, <laughs> you're good. Keep on keeping on. Um, but, you know, just checking in on each other. We know what the right thing is to do. And that's honestly being quiet in that moment. That's what it means to be a professional. Um, and so just making sure that we support each other um, in those efforts, I think is really important. Yeah, but I think kind of to summarize this and bring this home, when we're saying constructive things and accurate things about data, it's still okay in that space to disagree or to interpret things differently or see things in a different light. And that's what makes us all better is when you open yourself up to the opinions of others and appreciate different viewpoints. What's not okay to do is make up things that don't exist or to um, make the data tell a story they don't tell because it fits the narrative you want them to tell. Um, you can't you know, you can't make up things that are not true. And so that's what we're, what, what we're trying to do here with social media is to, if you want to write about the data that exists, just make sure you're explaining the data as they exist. It's okay to interpret them differently, but it's not okay to make things up. Um, I'll tell people, I guess, I'll, uh, so even, and again, this is true outside of the context of COVID-19. So um, I recently, like, um, did a study and had a lot of questions about it. And so I put together kind of a Twitter thread to comment back on the manuscript. I sent that to two SIDP members and colleagues and friends to peer review my my tweet thread, whatever, on my own data. Because I was like, can you just make sure this like reads okay and sounds okay and <laughs> is going to help people and isn't confusing? Like I had my own comments on my own data peer reviewed by two of my friends before I tweeted it. And people might not, obviously don't know that until right now. So um, that is because it's important, I think, to be sharing the right message. And so, um, all right, well, we got off on a little bit of a tangent, but overall, I think this was a good, good comments. <laughs> Not um, too bad. Anyway, do you guys have any final things to say before I wrap this up? Um, keep on keeping on. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast that are tired. They are overworked. They are anxious and stressed. We are all in this together, and we are yeah. so, so thankful for all the work that you've done. Yep. That's all I was going to say is thank you. Yeah. yeah, same. And if you are out there listening to this and you don't know what day it is, we don't know what day it is while we're recording it. So we feel you, <laughs> we hear you. All the days are 45 years. Um, hang in there, everybody. And uh, stay tuned for more content coming related to COVID-19. Enroll your patients in clinical trials, if at all possible, so we can actually learn what we're doing with these therapies because we want to find an effective treatment. And the only way we're going to do that is in well-designed, adequately powered studies. Be safe, be kind to each other, um, and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. I'm Erin McCreary. Um, on behalf of my guests, Julie Justo and Jason Pogue, thank you guys. Thank you.